available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. My name's Peter Walters, and this edition is being recorded on the 8th of November, 2023. Coming up in the programme, Leofric and Godiva, Coventry's own famous couple. Pantomimes and new money, World War II, and Dave Moorcroft. Hi, Sheriff, it's all here, you know. But first, with the news, Peter and Elaine. Outlook News. Coventry Remembrance Day service and parade will take place at the War Memorial Park this Sunday, November the 12th and will honour and pay respect to those who lost their lives in the two world wars and other conflicts throughout the globe. The parade will begin at Spencer Park and make its way to the War Memorial Park through the ceremonial gates to the Cenotaph. The service, led by the Venerable Barry Dugmore, Archdeacon of the Diocese of Coventry, will take place at 10.45am and people have been urged to assemble at the Cenotaph from 10.30. As well as the parade, the event features hymns, readings, the two-minute silence and prayers, followed by the laying of wreaths by representatives of groups including the armed forces, emergency services and civic representatives. The exhortation, famous words associated with remembrance events and the reading of Kahima will both be recited by ex-serviceman Jim Ramsey. There will also be a reading delivered by Pastor Etemai, the senior pastor at Holy Ghost Zone Parish in Hillfields and prayers will be led by the Roman Catholic Dean of Coventry the very reverend Canon Father Thomas Farrell. At three o'clock that afternoon, the annual communal grave service takes place at London Road Cemetery, which remembers the civilians and volunteers who died during the Coventry Blitz in 1940. Coventry North West MP Tairo Owatemi has welcomed the decision to scrap shambolic proposals to close rail station ticket offices after she petitioned the government to stop the controversial move. Transport Secretary Mark Harper confirmed the U-turn on the proposals, saying the ticket offices at Coventry, Canley and Tilehill stations from the Axe. Mr Harper said the government had asked train operators to withdraw the proposals as they had not met the high threshold of serving passengers as set by ministers. Under the plans, all ticket offices in their current form would have closed over the next three years, apart from several hub stations such as Birmingham Snow Hill, Sutton Coldfield, University and Wolverhampton. Instead, the rail firm said there would be a visible and accessible staff presence on ticket concourses and platforms during staff hours. The rationale for the move was that just 12% of all tickets are currently sold at offices, compared to 82% in the 1990s, and around half of all sales nationally were now made online. In September, Coventry City Council said it objected to the proposal to the proposed closure of rail station ticket offices, 
unless rail firms could give assurances that the plans would not affect passengers or lead to job losses. Ms Owatemi, meanwhile, launched a petition in July calling for the Department for Transport to stop the proposed closures, claiming the news was deeply worrying for many elderly and disabled people across Coventry, as well as ticket office staff. She said, Thank you to everyone who signed my petition to keep Coventry's rail ticket offices open. While I welcome this U-turn, this shambolic proposal should never have been put forward. We will continue our work to reform our railways with the expansion of contactless pay-as-you-go ticketing, making stations more accessible through our Access for All programme and £350 million funding through our Network North plan to improve accessibility at up to 100 stations. People who meet four criteria are now able to apply for an extra £300 to help with winter bills and payments. The extra support comes through the DWP's Household Support Fund and is paid by local authorities, with similar schemes running in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. The scheme in England provides local councils with a pot of cash which they can use to help vulnerable households in their community. To receive the money, you need to meet four eligibility requirements. To apply to the Household Support Fund, applicants must be over the age of 16 and responsible for paying the electricity or gas bills and provide proof of their residency, be experiencing financial hardship and not having received Household Support Fund payments in the last six months. There is no requirement to be in receipt of universal credit or other DWP benefits to apply. The money is available for councils in England to help those most in need by drawing from local knowledge and making direct contact with people in the community. Support is available to help with covering the costs of essentials like groceries, toiletries, warm clothes and energy bills. An award of £200 will be made to qualifying households of one or two people, including children, and £300 to qualifying households of three or more people, including children. Each local authority is operating the scheme in a slightly different way, so contact the City Council for full details. Councils have been awarded the money and are urging people to check if they are eligible. Household members must be permanent residents and registered for council tax at the address. Children must be permanent residents of the address and have child benefit in payment at the address. The council will carry out checks to confirm household members. A number of pieces of evidence will be required to verify every application. Just under half of Coventrians engaged with the City of Culture events between May 2021 and June 2022, with 77% of activities co-created with people from the City. And, despite Coventry City of Culture Trust heading into administration in February, 
A report by the city's two universities has led to Coventry City Councillor David Welsh claiming the year was a success overall. The report by Coventry University and the University of Warwick also revealed the programme involved every ward and neighbourhood across the city. The universities said the review evaluated participation and engagement numbers, the social and economic impact and how the programme adapted to the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, which delayed the start of events by five months. Target areas of historically low cultural participation saw increases of an average 36% for regular engagement with publicly funded culture in the city, while 41% of tickets issued went to members of Coventry's lower socio-economic groups. More than 3,000 community dancers, musicians, poets and makers took part in more than 700 events throughout the year. The report also found the year helped bring millions of pounds of investment into the city and resulted in a £150 million boost in tourism income above pre-Covid levels. During its seven-year lifespan, the City of Culture Trust received £44.5 million to bid for, win and deliver City of Culture. In addition, £183.1 million worth of added investment flowed into the city, which the report said was secured, at least in part, due to the award of the City of Culture title. And 1,515 people became fully trained city host volunteers, with 91% stating they fairly or very strongly had a sense of belonging to Coventry. In June, the two universities and Coventry City Council announced their support for the 10-year Coventry Culture Works. The strategy will see them work alongside leaders from the city's creative leadership to help take Coventry's culture forward. A Coventry councillor has slammed plans for a £112 million upgrade to the A46 Walsgrave Junction after being left staggered by their failure to propose a direct link and second access to University Hospital. Councillor Ed Ruane claims staff and patients have had to endure traffic congestion due to only one access route to the hospital since it opened and said Coventrians would never forgive missing the opportunity to provide a second access route. A consultation on National Highway's proposals for the upgrade, which would include a new junction consisting of two new roundabouts connected via a new bridge over the A46, will now run until December the 6th. Work is currently expected to begin in late 2026 and finish around two years later. Traffic congestion on the A46 has led to slower speeds, longer trip times and more queuing for drivers, with the upgrade aiming to prevent queues and support more economic growth in the West Midlands. The A46 has experienced safety issues in the past, with the section south of Coventry in the top 45% for total casualties. However, Councillor Ruane said he was staggered to find the proposal only provides a slip route 
onto Clifford Bridge Road, which remains the only route in and out of the hospital. He added, why is there no proposal to provide a direct link and second access in this consultation, as it was stated as being the main response in previous consultations? If we miss the opportunity to provide a second access route to the hospital, then the citizens of Coventry will never forgive us. National Highway Senior Project Manager Joe Mulqueen said, We're always keen to hear the views of local people, and we fully understand the concerns raised by Councillor Ruane. There are already plans in place for a new hospital link road in Coventry City Council's local plan of 2017 as part of the Walsgrave Hill Farm site allocation. To make sure our scheme supports any future work at the junction, we're working closely with the developer involved to make sure our proposed Walsgrave Junction design accommodates a potential future access point for a dedicated route into University Hospital. Coventrians are being urged to have their say on how the city's political map is redrawn. New boundaries are being proposed for council wards in Coventry, with the Local Government Boundary Commission now running a consultation on the plans until January the 22nd. The plans are designed to ensure that each Coventry City Councillor is representing around the same number of electors and that ward arrangements help the authority work effectively. The independent body, which began the review earlier this year, has now published proposals for changes to Coventry. These include adding the Eastern Green Sustainable Urban Extension in Woodlands Ward, using the A45 boundary as the boundary between the new development and Bablake Ward to the north. The Commission also proposes amending the boundary between Upper Stoke and Lower Stoke to follow Longfellow Road rather than Anstey Road as it currently does. Professor Colin Mellers, Chair of the Commission, said We want people in Coventry to help us. We want to make sure these new electoral arrangements reflect communities. We also want them to be easy to understand and convenient for local people. Residents and local organisations can help us do that. We would like them to let us know whether they agree with our proposals before we take final decisions. Shoppers could soon face a hike in prices as a result of a Royal Mail, Royal Mail change to its fees. Business account customers will be asked to pay a new 2p green surcharge which is being introduced this week. And while the surcharge won't apply directly to consumers, there are concerns businesses will up their prices to cover the extra cost, meaning the public will still end up footing the bill. The surcharge will apply to a number of Royal Mail tracked and guaranteed services. Business account customers will also be asked to pay an additional peak surcharge of 5p for letters and 10p for parcels. Those changes will come into force on November the 20th and end on January the 7th, the peak time for Christmas deliveries. Sarah Coles, personal finance analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne, said, Online retailers are having to contend with rising prices on all sides 
so they're highly unlikely to take these extra charges on the chin. It's going to be passed on to shoppers who can expect to see the cost of Christmas keep on rising. It comes after Royal Mail up the price of first-class stamps from £1.10 to £1.25 on October the 2nd. Andrew Hager, personal finance expert at Moneycoms, said the possibility of additional costs was the last thing hard-pressed consumers need. Coventry's very light rail project has reached a massive milestone after the vehicle was successfully run on its test track in Dudley. The battery-powered vehicle and groundbreaking track system aims to offer cities the chance to install rapid passenger train systems faster and at a much lower cost than traditional light rail systems. The track is thinner than the ones used in existing light rail or tram systems, meaning that it can be laid just 30 centimetres deep into the road surface, reducing the need to divert all pipes and cables. The project has been backed with £40 million from the City Region Sustainable Transport Settlement, awarded to the West Midlands Combined Authority by the Department for Transport. The cash is being used to progress the research and development to deliver an affordable integrated mass transit system that could be deployed in cities across the country. This work is leading up to a real-world demonstration of VLR on the streets of Coventry City Centre. Coventry City Councillor Jim O'Boyle said it was fantastic to see the vehicle running on its track for the very first time. This track is crucial to our vision and this successful test is a big milestone for the project. This test will also show that our vehicle can run on tight corners and up and down hills. It's this that will enable it to run in smaller and medium-sized cities. The war against dangerous drivers in the West Midlands has received a £1 million government cash boost. The cash, secured by the region's Police and Crime Commissioner Simon Foster, will allow him to buy three speed camera vans, employ six more staff to view videos of dangerous drivers and tackle antisocial behaviour on the streets. Funds will also be used to boost the community speed watch scheme and allow the PCC to tackle violence against women and girls in public spaces by educating youngsters and encouraging upstander behaviour in adults. Since 2013, road collisions and casualties have started to rise, with over a 1,000 people seriously injured in road traffic collisions in the last financial year, including 55 fatalities. Mr Foster said, Preventing and tackling crime and antisocial behaviour on our roads, promoting road harm reduction and reducing the number of people tragically and avoidably killed and seriously injured on our roads are also top priorities. This funding will help West Midlands Police make our roads safer for all by expanding community speed watch schemes, boosting third party reporting, with six new staff to oversee submitted video footage and three new speed camera vans, 
Ending male violence against women and girls has also been a core priority for me from day one. Coventry's Paxton Arboretum at the London Road Cemetery will be hosting a sculpture trail this November inspired by the venue's historic landscape. The Arboretum will be welcoming visitors from today, Wednesday, until Saturday, November the 11th, as its hills, shrubs and trees are used as an inspiration for sculptures by four acclaimed artists. The artists will be crafting sculptures around separate themes in response to the Arboretum's landscape. Visitors will be able to watch and support the artists as they work with the cemetery's natural materials. Then, on Saturday, November the 11th, the artists will be hosting a guided walking tour of their artworks, discussing their sculptures, the creative process and their personal journeys. The sculptures will remain at the Arboretum throughout Remembrance Weekend. The land sculptures are being crafted as part of the Coventry Peace Festival, which promotes the city's history as a place of reconciliation. London Road Cemetery was created in 1845 and designed by architect Joseph Paxton, and... Following a restoration project led by Historic Coventry Trust, it was opened to visitors as a green space. Police have vowed to crack down on thieves plaguing the streets of Coventry. Officers made a number of arrests over the past week as part of Operation Calibre, including eight arrests in the city centre. Suspects were arrested on suspicion of offences, including stealing vehicles as well as robbery and burglary. Residents are likely to see an increased police presence in the city over Christmas. Officers say the action will make a huge difference to protecting the public and keeping their property safe. Officers are set to hit the streets in the coming weeks as they focus on preventing and reducing burglary, vehicle crime and robbery across the West Midlands. It will form part of a nationwide crackdown known as Operation Calibre. Temporary's Chief Superintendent Ronan Tyra said, This week marks the start of Operation Calibre, our intensification campaign aimed at reducing robbery across the city. We will be seeing an increased police presence in Coventry over the coming weeks, as we take action against those who would commit robbery and other violent offences. There is no place for this kind of offending in Coventry, and we are committed to keeping people safe at all times. A spokesman for West Midlands Police said, You will see plenty of updates around good arrests and prevention work as we intensify our activity against robbery, which remains a priority for us. City Council Chiefs have knocked back calls to pause the Earlsdon Livable Neighbourhood Programme, despite a petition urging for the scheme to be temporarily halted, gaining over 250 signatures. The plans to make Earlsdon Coventry's first livable neighbourhood aim to encourage more walking and cycling in the area. Livable neighbourhoods usually group residential streets together around the facilities such as schools, shops and surgeries, and are bordered by main roads. However, 
Earlton residents said some didn't understand all of the 18 schemes identified within the complex proposal. The petition said since the scheme was not time limited, a delay was required to ensure the surrounding areas were aware of the ramifications of this scheme and were properly consulted. It added, the majority of the scheme proposed will do little to improve our livability and in some cases will make the environment and air quality far worse. We are unhappy with the lack of a public meeting and the lack of overall engagement with Earlsdon residents, traders and other stakeholders. It is felt this scheme is being rushed through without an opportunity for the community to fully consider the outcomes. A council spokesperson said the authority was pleased with the number of local people who have taken part in its two consultations and rejected claims that the scheme had been rushed through. The scheme has been a year in the making and in the very first consultation people were clear about the traffic issues in their area and their priorities for action. The proposals that have recently been consulted on are intended to tackle these priorities as far as possible. Over 400 people have now had their say on the proposals which will be analysed over the coming weeks and we will refine the proposals so we only deliver changes that have local support. The spokesperson added the next stage would involve a public meeting after which it would have to raise traffic regulation orders allowing another opportunity for people to have their say. Stunning images of a Coventry mural by world-famous sculptor William Mitchell have been revealed for the first time in decades. The history of Coventry was created in 1974 in the foyer of Hartford House, a former office block which is scheduled for demolition as part of the City Centre South development. The 28-foot mural depicts iconic moments and people from Coventry, including the Cathedral Fire and Lady Godiva. It was hidden by a plaster stud wall and was only uncovered last year. It has since been documented by Historic England as part of a report looking at art and historic buildings impacted by the more than £400 million City Centre South redevelopment. Aaron Law from the Coventry Society has seen many of William Mitchell's pieces across the world and said he wanted to raise awareness of his contributions to the city's culture. He added that the City Centre South developer, Shearer Property Region Limited, was preparing a public art strategy to relocate Mitchell's works both on site and close to the redevelopment. Aaron said, I was just amazed to see what was on it. It's a massive piece of work and the fact that this could be public art is brilliant. Outlook News Thanks to uh, Peter and Elaine this week for the news. Uh, welcome, Peter. It's his first time reading the news. You're very well. Um, yeah, we've got uh, a public uh, an announcement here um, from the Coventry Torch uh, Group. The next meeting, they say, will be on Saturday, November the 25th at 2pm at Earlson Methodist Church. And they're all, they've also got a Christmas event 
uh, on Saturday the 23rd of December at 2pm. All are invited to attend that at, again, Earls of Methodist Church. Um, the lighting up times this week, sunrise is at 7.14am and sunset at 4.26pm. And now we're going to move on now to news from the Resource Centre. Here's Joe. Hello. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, everybody. Nice to speak to you all again. I hope everybody's well. Uh, Hugh sends his apologies, and um, he's just had to go home and sort a few things out. He's working from home this afternoon. So you have me again. So it's my pleasure to speak to you all. I don't have a huge number of items to talk about, but I thought I'd start by talking about the, If you, you may have covered this already, but the um, station ticket office closures, yes? Mm. Has that been covered in other articles? Well, we're, we're delighted to hear, as you all probably have as well, that mm. the, uh, they've done a U-turn on, on that after receiving more than 750,000 responses. So, um, so hurrah for that and uh, the next thing we need to do is uh, achieve the same end I would say where it comes to pavement parking so uh, we'll keep our eyes open on campaigns going on for that but I know that's a subject close to all of our hearts as well it's good to think public campaigning can still be so powerful isn't it um, next thing to talk about is uh, the winter warmer which is our annual Christmas fair coming up this year on Saturday the 2nd of December and uh, we're very grateful to those of you who've already brought in some gifts for the Tombola. If you have any gift items that you're not going to need, uh, we'd be delighted to receive them, either for the nearly new stall or for the Tombola itself. I should say, it's a terrible thing to admit, but somehow this charity, and I'm sure many others, we've ended up with quite a lot of bottles. <laughs> so in the attic, we have quite a lot of bottles of, of lovely, delicious things. Uh, so we're probably quite well served for bottles of things. So if you've got any other ideas about what people might like in the Tombola. It's interesting that, though, isn't it? That uh, mm. people automatically assume, you know, I'll tell you what, there's a bottle of, a bottle of wine. Exactly. There. And mm. lovely as that is, um, yeah. it, it's nice to have a range of things and not to, not to look like the local off-licence. <laughs> Does it have to fit in a bottle bag shape, though? Um, not really, because no. quite a few small items a can gift, be packed into gift, those bottle right. bags. And we've got quite a number of other bags in the attic we can use. So... Yeah, whatever people have got hanging around that they've not used or they don't want or um, pick up some fairly affordable things and can pass on, we'd be very grateful. Um, winter warmer planning is underway. Uh, we're going to have the usual spectacular catering from Hugh. So come along and take part in our food, if nothing else. Uh, we'll have some games for the kids. We're aiming to have a craft stall, uh, the tombola, and we're trying to think of another couple of fun things to present as well. So if you've got any ideas, we're always welcome to ideas. Um, before we get to the winter warmer, you've been hearing from Hugh, I think, anyway, about the Poppy campaign, Remembrance Day, that we're doing. So our thanks to Joe Proctor and many other people, craft group here and many other people in local community groups, who've been helping to create hundreds of poppies in various formats, uh, fabric, plastic vinyl CDs that have been melted mm. down, all sorts of interesting mm. Mm. tires. Tires. They've been decorating tires for reeds. Um, and we are going to be putting up the cascade, poppy cascade, at the front of the building. Um, 
uh, quite how we'll do it, I don't know, but we'll work something out. <laughs> Drop it out of the window. <laughs> it might involve some resident being invaded for a little while, but we'll, we'll, we'll put some hooks up on the wall at the front. So it'll, it'll effectively be on the corner of the building to the right side of the Boston Lodge entrance door, so to the right of our door as well. Um, so we're hoping that corner will be quite visible. And we're aiming to get some light show going as well on the Saturday when we'll be outside there for a couple of hours from 4.30 to 6.30. So the event, we're just having a fairly low-key thing, but we've put it out on Facebook. Please let people know to come along. 4.30 to 6.30, Saturday the 11th of Mm. November, Mm. which is coming up, isn't it? Mm. Um, So we hope that'll be uh, just quite a nice thing to do and we'll have a collection for the poppy day as well as the craft sale for our charity a um, couple of other things um, some of you re- may remember Jean Jones who used to come to the centre quite regularly and her son or Mark who used to be a driver for us uh, who moved away a long while ago uh, Jean hasn't been here for some time because she's been getting more frail and her family let us know that she died a couple of weeks ago so I'm just passing that news on and if anyone does remember Jean fondly uh, we can pass cards on to the family and I wanted to let you know that we know that her funeral will be at the Canley Crematorium on the 27th of November 12.45 we just don't know which chapel but when we do we'll let you know so if you want to know more about that please let reception know or give us a call and then I'd like to just acknowledge our lovely new drivers. We've had, as you know, a few new drivers, and they're, they're a, lo- a lovely bunch, and they're all getting on pretty well. So I hope you're enjoying meeting the new, the new bunch of drivers and that uh, you're feeling uh, safely escorted in and out of the building. Uh, obviously, if there's anything you think they need to know that we haven't told them or taught them, please tell us. But um, it's just such a help to have a few more hands on deck where the driving is concerned. So, um, and lastly, we are very aware that at the front of our building, the tactile strips in the main mm. concrete, main forecourt, have really Dropped. been crumbling away and dropping, mm. and mm. they're very uneven in places. So, uh, we are aware of that. We've been trying very hard to get that problem fixed in various ways over the last few years, but it just keeps recurring probably because there's so many cars and the minibuses full of people going in and out all day long. Um, so, I will now be looking to try and get a big pot of funding from somewhere so that we can get a proper job done and maybe move the strips to the side of that area a little bit more safe perhaps so if anyone has any strong feelings about that or knows anyone that might fund that kind of work or indeed contractors, builders who might be happy to do some of the work uh, for us then we'd be uh, welcome to ideas on that too but just to let you know we are aware of the problem and we are doing our best to try and think how we can remedy it for the long term. So I think that's all my news, Pete. And um, just to say uh, best wishes to everybody, and uh, I'll see you all again soon. Thank you very much, Joe. Well, as usual, a lot going on. Uh, winter warmer sounds, though. It's winding up pretty well. That's yes, I think we're planning ahead a bit more this year, trying yeah. to. Just yeah. coming up with fresh ideas, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's time for sport. And with the successes and failures of the last week, here's Sarah. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners. It's Sarah again with Sad Sport. 
seem to be too many losses going on at the moment. Well, for my teams anyway. Right, let's start with Saturday afternoon when Coventry City travelled up north to Preston North End and their ground Deepdale, a ground that City have never won on in the league. The last time they won there was actually in the League Cup when in 2001 when our manager was Gordon Strachan. In fact, one of the goals was scored by his son, Gavin. Hey-ho, those were the days. No, no, don't get me wrong. I don't want Mark Robbins to go. Now, the first goal in four matches, hallelujah, was how CWR greeted the goal scored by Hadji Wright. However, then Preston equalised within about five minutes and literally a few seconds later, they won a penalty and managed to convert that. Preston 2-1. How the heck did that happen? Anyway, second half, we'll soon show them. Well, it didn't quite go like that. In fact, Preston made it 3-1. Before that man had you right, the American international scored after a fantastic team effort. Literally, it started with our goalie bowling it to one of our players who passed it to another, passed it to another, passed it to another. Josh Eccles tried to fire it in but it was saved, but Hadji Wright was there to net the rebound. Coventry City 2, Preston 3. My gosh, those final few minutes were manic. But I'm afraid that's how it ended. Preston 3, Coventry 2. So... Our search for a victory at Deepdale continues and I'm afraid it's now no points out of 12. We've lost all four of our last matches. But as I said a few minutes ago, I really want us to keep the manager because I think if, if all of our new players can just click and speak to each other, or communicate whatever they do on the pitch when they're gasping probably for breath. You know, we're going to be a good team again and we've got to remember that. So, going down to our so-called non-league teams, although as I always say, they do play in leagues. Stratford Town 3, Mickelover 2. You cannot underestimate that victory. Mickelover are the runaway leaders at the top of the Southern Premier League and Stratford haven't exactly had one of the best records of late but you turned it on now boys, well done there. Now not having a ground doesn't seem to be doing Nuneaton Borough any harm at the moment well when they're playing on the pitch that is. They beat away Needham Market two goals to nil. 
I was quite surprised to see that match actually on because it was against Needham Market a few weeks ago that Leamington were postponed. Oh well, what do I know about weather? But meanwhile, poor old Leamington. Leamington collapse gives them gives away two points is how their Facebook site greeted their two-all draw away to Stamford Town. Two-all. Oh, Coventry City are only dreaming of that. Now, looking at the international scene. Oh, yes, there have been some internationals. In the Women's Nation Cup, and having beaten Belgium 1-0 at home, Serena Diegman's team headed off to Belgium full of high hopes. But sadly, they lost three goals to two. And they now sit third in their table, ahead of Scotland, I'm pleased to say, but behind Holland and Belgium. Now, the reason it is so important is that England have been nominated by the home nations to be the sort of team that if they win the Nations Cup, Great Britain gets a place at the Olympics. So really, you've got to do just that little bit better. But the Lionesses, well, they'll come back roaring. And now I turn to rugby in the Code of Union. So surely Calf can cheer me up. You've done so well, you lot, in your pre-season and early season in the Premiership Cup. Oh, heck. Am till 34, Coventry 24. Not a lot, really, I can say. I didn't listen to the match beyond the first few minutes. And actually, Coventry scored first. Still, I'm just glad I'm not an away supporter. My friend, who is an avid away goer, says that the Amtil Stadium, which I use in inverted commas, is basically a field on top of a hill. Oh, I bet it was lovely there on Saturday in the driving rain and the wind. Yes, I think I would rather be getting my fill of sport, sitting at home, listening to the radio or watching the television. Ah, here we are. We've got some great news. Meanwhile, over in New Zealand... The England women's team. Oh, hang on. I'm going to quote here from The Guardian. England overpower New Zealand in to take the WXV title and avenge the World Cup defeat. Yes, well, they certainly did overpower New Zealand, the so-called world champions, beating them... 33 points to 12. Now, this is, was the first year this international tournament has been run, and it seems to have been a great success. The format is that the teams are kind of seeded into different leagues within the tournament. So, only 
the winner of the top league can actually take the overall title. But we did, so who cares? And we did it by quite a lot. And I apologise to listeners for not having covered it more, well, at all, actually. But it has been so hard trying to get information about it because, of course, we've had the men's game. And as we know with sport ladies, the men's game always takes priority. And now to athletics. Just a quick mention. Congratulations to Jason Bennett of Birchfield Harriers who won the Coventry Half Marathon in 1 hour, 10 minutes and 5 seconds. Cool. 70 minutes to run 13 miles. Oh, I'd like to say them were the days, but them were never the days. I always used to take about 2 hours 30. But I had fun. And finally... Have you heard the joke about the England one-day international cricket team? Oh, hang on. The England one-day international cricket team are the joke. Yep, they went into this year's World Championship full of high hopes, defending champions and really only themselves to lose to. Well, didn't quite play out like that. And they finished bottom of the league behind the heavyweights of India, South Africa, Australia and currently New Zealand. But also, let's throw in Holland, Afghanistan, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Oh dear, no wonder Ben Stokes' his knee says it needs surgery. Anyway, that has been your sport and hopefully next week I will be able to bring you something happy. Perhaps Coventry will beat Stoke on Saturday. <sighs> Dream on, Sarah. Dream on. Bye. Sad about the football, but well done the women's rugby team. And probably best no comment about the cricket team, the one-day team anyway. Uh, and now here's Dave with this week's Postback. This is Postback. Join in the discussion. Hi, welcome to your Postbag this week. Robert Franklin, who told us about the world blind sports, is back with another great bit of information. If you are a charity, and if you're looking for an entertainer for your group, make note of this number. Robert Franklin writes, On Monday at the partially sighted meeting, there was a man called Simon Coates, who was a singer. He does lots of charities and would like me to mention his name on Outlook. His number is 073-0896-2425. Thank you very much, Robert. Well, I bagged him first for the Monday Club. 
Well, after Monday the 13th of November, when we look forward to our own Sarah giving a talk, Simon Coates is coming the week after to entertain on the 20th of November. Member of the Monday Club, Wynne, told you recently that she helped to open the Black Country Museum as a member of the Canal Trust. This week she talks about her home in the Black Country being bombed in the Blitz. We uh, had a bomb hit the house, a direct hit, and we were in the pantry sheltering by the fireplace because that's the strongest part of the house. And uh, the wardens came along and said, anybody in there? So we poked our head round from, <laughs> from where we were under the stairs and said, yes, get out as quick as you can because the rest of the house might fall. <laughs> so we went to the door and all the wall was... <laughs> Yeah. Why we went for the door, I've no idea. You could have walked straight through the wall, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I always laugh about that, you can walk through the wall. <laughs> don't, they said, don't touch the door because the rest of the house might fall. Yeah. Come out this way. So we walked all over the glass and, and yeah. got out. <laughs> and still on the subject of wartime, Julia has this thoughtful report entitled Poppies, Poppies and More Poppies. Guess what I'm making? Well, there's no point in guessing. I gave the game away in the title. I crocheted them to remember the servicemen and women who died that we may live and get drunk and get arrested. For those that don't know, there have been lots of wars and people fighting and killing, so we make the poppies to sell and make some money for charity. It helps us remember them. Good old Joanne is making a cascade of poppies, just like the one in the Tower of London. Well, it won't be quite as big as that one, but nearly as big. They symbolise remembrance and hope. I asked my friend John what he hopes for, and he said liquids all sorts and peace in the Middle East. He might be lucky with the liquids all sorts, but it's a serious thing this Remembrance Day. Lots of people have lost friends and relatives in wars. We should all contribute to the Armistice Day parades in whatever way we believe is appropriate. I've crocheted 45 poppies so far and I'm going to do some more. Julia and Jen and even their grumpy old friend John wish everybody a happy poppy day. Don't get drunk and get arrested. Lots of love, Julia. Well, thank you, Julia, and well done. And now here's the latest tip from Edwina. It's a tip about knowing which pill to take if you can't see them. Hi, everybody. This is Edwina. I'm just going to give you a tip about um, anyone that is taking regular tablets. It is quite difficult to find the next one that you want to use when you're going down feeling the hold where the previous used ones have been. I came up with this idea that if you fold the corner at the top, bent over, 
It is an indication to you which row the next tablet is. I just thought it might help you because it just takes time trying to find where the next tablet has to come out. So keep smiling, it'll be easier. Bye. Thank you, Edwina. I was listening to a back number of Outlook the other day in July, and Wendy gave a tip about using nutcrackers to open drinks bottles such as water. Bob Syme would like to reply to a lovely postbag article about horses. I was very interested in Wendy's part about her horses. Uh, Wendy missed one thing out, uh, the cost of horses, not just the cost of horses and the keep, and the hay and the oats and the bran, is the shoeing. If you're taking a horse out on the road, it's about £80 a time to shoe a horse now, I believe. I used to have three horses myself, which was Ricky, Diamond and Remy. Ricky was my pony. Diamond was a stallion I had from 18 months old. Fastest horse in the middle for a pony. I sent him away to be broken in to Trinnels, but they sent him back, told me he was unrideable, so I broke him in myself. This is many years ago. And then I sold him to Dave Ducker. He, he ended up with it, Diamond. And then I had Rennie, he was a 16-3 brace horse. That's 55 foot 7 to its witness. So I've had, still, I still ride now, and uh, I ride Jake, who is Carol Matthews, is a very, very dear friend of mine that's taught hundreds of people to ride from Oakland Farm in Clay Lane, obviously. She, she used to have, uh, her daughter's got four horses, so I ride one there called Jake. He's about a 15-2, big, heavy not a, that heavy, but he, he can jump, he can do everything. I don't jump, I just riding around the bad photos taken by Carol of me riding Jake and I've had them put on mugs drinking mugs from uh, I go up all part now and again and gifts galore up there you can take any photo that gifts galore to Mary or Dave and they put them on whatever you want well, I had them put on my, me on the horse two of them me on it riding and two with his head right against my face I haven't got horses now, but I've got a guide dog nearly as big. I've got an eight stone German Shepherd. So I've actually come, called Topper. So I've actually come down from my horses to a big German Shepherd. Keep telling us about your horse, uh, Wendy. Is it a, a mare or a gelding? And did you break him in or do you have him broken in? Very interesting. All the best. Wow, how do you break in a horse, Wendy and Bob? Outlook engineers, Christine and John, are trying to break in the new phone system and trying to get the quality right for postbag messages. And I'm sorry if we've missed one of your messages, Graham, about HS2 in the changeover to the new system. Please send it again. In the meantime... Here's a comment from Graham about Ding Dong, Avon calling or not calling. Interesting to hear about the Freeman catalogue. Um, I had communication from the Avon lady 
uh, a couple of months ago, if you remember the Avon lady, she put something through the door and uh, it said, I shan't be caught knocking the door when I come round, just leave it outside the front door on a certain day. I left it outside the front door on a certain day and they didn't come round. In fact, I left it there for a couple of days after. Eventually I brought it in because the weather. But uh, they didn't come round for it. In fact, this happened a few years back when I uh, last had dealings with the, uh, the Avon lady, or they had dealings with me. <laughs> I don't, I'm not interested. Um, I don't know, just see the dated way of doing business these days. I mean, I hope there is an alternative to doing business on the internet, but uh, the idea of having to do it through an agent like that, I mean, what if I wanted to buy something and pay with my debit or credit card? Um, can they accommodate that? Can an agent accommodate that? But uh, I don't know, it just seems a bit dated, really. But I'm just about going to throw that package away having that they haven't come around for it. So, it's too late now. Don't want anything from them anyway. I smell nice enough. Thanks, Graham. When our daughter-in-law, Kathy, had the idea to become an Avon lady, she came up with a problem regarding her first potential customer. Sheila never wore any makeup and never needed it. She was beautiful. Finally, Majid Hussain has sent in some important news to my email at davidmonksathotmail.com about local radio. Majid says, I hope you and the listeners are all well. Some more network changes are coming to BBC CWR as of Tuesday the 7th of November. Currently between 7 and 10 on Tuesday and Wednesday we have Letitia George from Coventry. From Tuesday the 7th of November we will have Aaron Verma from BBC Radio Nottingham take over the whole of the Midlands, replacing Letitia George who was on as a stopgap measure. More for Majid next week. Thank you very much, Majid, and thank you for your messages this week. Great postbag. Please let's hear from you next time. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Your postbag for this week with Dave. Now it's time to find out about some of the entertainment around Coventry which might whet your appetite with Sarah. Well hello there listeners. It's on in Cov again. But with a bit of a difference this week because it will be the first of two parts looking forward to some of the shows that are on at Christmas. Now listeners, you don't know what I do for you. I absolutely detest pantomimes. But I'm going to sound really cheerful and really buoyant and basically read from a lot of the publicity. Okay, understood? Right, let's get on with this then. So this week I'll be looking at what's on at the Belgrade and the Warwick Arts Centre. 
And next week, I will be looking at what's on at the Albany and probably a bit more at the Warwick Arts Centre and anywhere else in our fair city or its surroundings that I can find who've got a pantomime or something Christmassy on. And then probably the next edition, I'm hoping to look forward to some of the more cultural, shall we say, and traditional events of celebrating Christmas. Now, as most of you probably know, on at the Belgrave Theatre this year is the pantomime Cinderella and it runs from Wednesday, November the 22nd until Saturday the 13th of January with tickets starting at £15, though not for all performances. I know many start at about £23. And performance times, according to the box office, vary. And my gosh, they do. Just doing a quick flip through the various showings. There were some at 1pm, others at 2pm, at 5pm, 6.30pm and 7pm. So you really do need to check when you book. Now, it's written by the old pantomime dame, Ian Lockram, a Belgrave favourite. And this pantomime will feature spectacular sets with costumes and sing-along songs. My gosh, this will make a trip to the Belgrave Theatre, one really not to miss for your Christmas treat. What's more, there's not only one, but two dastardly dames in the shape of the Ugly Sisters in this year's show, which is set to be double the trouble, double the fun and double the mayhem. Now, there, as, as Dave mentioned last week, there is a pre-show picnic before the matinee performance on December the 9th. The picnic starts at half past 11. The performance starts at 2pm and there is audio description at that performance. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the concept of a pre-show picnic, it's an opportunity to do things like meet some of the actors, feel the costumes, perhaps have a touch of the set. Basically, to familiarise yourself with all those bits that we whose vision is not the world's best can't always see or pick up. So booking really is essential for that pre-show picnic. But if you wish to book for any of the performances or find out more details, the box office number is... 024-7655-3055 But don't forget, by phone, there's only limited opening hours between 10.30 and 2pm. So next, I looked at my least favourite website, I have to say. 
it's so fancy and got so many filters but that being Warwick Art Centre and I searched for Christmas and it showed me two hits the first one being their programme of seasonal lectures Christmas lectures as they call them now this is definitely one for any of you who've got a real interest in science or, or really want to brush up your knowledge on science. These will be on Thursday the 30th of November and Thursday the 7th of December and are in the main hall. Amongst other things, they'll be challenging AI to write a Christmas card. They'll be looking into how animals have inspired engineering, the colours of the spectrum and expect snow, hopefully inside the theatre, not outside. We don't want any of that slippery, slidey stuff. Thank you very much. And they'll also be wishing Sir Isaac Newton a very happy birthday. Now the talks last an hour and a half and start at 7pm and from what I could find ticket prices seem to be at £4.50 so it's not going to break the bank. Meanwhile total change of direction but still on in the main Butterworth Hall the Halle Orchestra are proud to present their Christmas concert. This will be on Wednesday the 13th of December at half past seven. Alongside vocal highlights from, amongst others, Handel, Mozart, Mel Torme and, my favourite, Les Miserables. You will hear a sack full of seasonal festive songs and tunes. Certainly one to fill your advent calendar with. Now ticket prices seem to be £22. So if you want to book or find out further details, ring them on 024 7649 6,000 and just as a preempt for next week the Albany has not one but two sort of Christmas show come pantomimes Oliver Twist which will start in December and Puss in Boots which starts just after Christmas see you next week for more of your with the pantomime season nearly upon us watch out maybe he's behind you uh, there'll be more entertainment from Sarah next week, so you won't have to wait a fortnight. Leifric and Godiva are undoubtedly the most famous names associated with Coventry, and Margaret's here to tell more about them in an article from Coventry Echoes of the Past, written by Frank Roden. Leifric, Earl of Mercia, sometimes called Leifric the Grim, founded and richly endowed, together with his wife Godiva, a Benedictine monastery in 1043. The years following saw the monastic buildings rise on the site, once occupied by the nunnery of St. Osberg. Dedicated to St. Mary, 
the monastic enclave was to cover some 13 acres, and the priory church, after later rebuilding, was to extend for almost 142 yards along now what is Priory Row. But even the original and smaller priory church was described as one of the glories of the age, seeming, according to a contemporary chronicle, William of Malmesbury, too narrow to contain the abundance of treasures within its walls. Godiver employed silversmiths and goldsmiths to make images of saints and to beautify the interior. Other treasures, the strange relics sold by the macabre medieval trexters of the time, were bought abroad at great expense and enshrined within the church. The arm of St. Augustine of Hippo, two heads of St. Ursula, and even the supposed jawbone of an ass with which came slew his brother. So richly was the building embellished that one less than reverent gentleman, Bishop Robert de Limousy, was able to plunder silver worth 500 marks by scraping the silver coating from a single beam which supported the shrines. Indeed, it was recorded by a chronicler that it was for purposes of plunder that the bishop removed his see from Litchfield to Coventry. On her deathbed, Godiva performed her last act of piety by insisting that her gem-laden rosary be placed around the neck of the statue of the Virgin. Of the treasure house, which was the priory church, nothing remains. When some 200 years later it was replaced by a larger Benedictine cathedral, all traces were lost. The hillside from Priory Row down towards Pool Meadow was terraced and levelled and the earlier remains and artefacts probably obscured forever. Leofric died in 1057 and Godiva ten years later. They were buried in adjoining porches of the Priory Church and the later building is probably responsible for their resting places never having been found. The porches would have fronted onto Priory Row, a place which has been the focal point of much of Coventry's early history. Of the medieval Benedictine Cathedral, all that remains today are the foundations of the northwest wall, which can be seen from Priory Row by looking over the railings at the east end of the row of Tudor half-timbered cottages and some fragments of walling which were built into what is now new buildings. The northwest tower of this cathedral survived the ravages of time and the dissolution and, in 1649, was used as a residence by Dr. Bryan, a well-known locally for his strong Puritan views. The central tower was, by then, in ruinous condition and the good doctor saw fit to use it as a piggery. Finally, in 1820, the remains of the once stately minster were turned over to the townspeople to use as a quarry. From the centuries-old history of Coventry, we come right up to date. New money. Elaine tells me she's very much in favour of keeping cash, as well as the other ways of paying, so was very interested to learn about a design on the new set of coins in an article by the BBC Cost of Living correspondent Kevin Peachy, which she now reads for us. Large numbers on an entirely redesigned set of UK coins will help children to identify figures and learn to count, the Royal Mint has said. The coins will enter circulation by the end of the year, marking the new reign of King Charles III 
and celebrating his love of the natural world. The tails side of every coin, from the one p to the two pound, will feature the country's flora and fauna. Old coins can still be used, with the new set struck in response to demand. Rebecca Morgan, director at the Mint, told the BBC, The large numbers will be very appealing to children who are learning to count and about the use of money. Also, the animals and everything you see on these coins will appeal to children and to adults. They are great conversation starters. Animals ranging from the red squirrel to the capercaillie grouse are depicted on the new designs. The king's now familiar portrait will be on the front of each coin, many for the first time. Although cash use, and especially the popularity of coins, has been in decline in recent years, the mint says heritage and need mean this change is still required. We know a large portion of the country are still heavily reliant on cash, Ms Morgan said. It is also tradition to mark moments of a monarch coming to the throne with a new set of coinage, so it is important that we carry on that tradition. The BBC was given an advanced viewing of the new coins, the size and shape of which remain unchanged. Although there have been commemorative coins circulating featuring King Charles, these new designs, officially known as definitives, mark the final chapter of the King's transition in onto coinage. Definitive coins feature the standard designs seen on the majority of official currency. These designs stay the same for years or even decades. The previous set featured a shield formation and was introduced under Queen Elizabeth II in 2008 and will still dominate the 29 billion coins in circulation in the UK for some time yet. The reverse or tails side of the new coins will be the matter of most interest to collectors and for quizmasters. They are designed to show the importance and precariousness of the natural world. On the 1P, a hazel dormouse, which has seen its population halve since 2007. On the 2P, a red squirrel, which is expected to blend into the colour of the copper coin. On the 5P, an oak tree leaf, signifying its role as a rich habitat for biodiversity in woodland areas, and an association with monarchy of the past. The 10p has the capercaillie, the world's largest grouse, found in a small part of Scotland <coughs> and threatened with extinction. The 20p has a puffin. The 50p, the Atlantic salmon, which is a threat from river pollution and habitat loss. On the pound coin, there are bees, and the £2 coin has the national flowers, a rose for England, a daffodil for Wales, a thistle for Scotland, and a shamrock for Northern Ireland. Kevin Clancy, director of the Royal Mint Museum, said, People who remember pre-decimal coins 
might be called the wren farthing or the thrift design on the twelve-sided threepenny bit, but it wasn't lots of the natural world. What is different about these coins is that they are all about the natural world. They are also links to history and the changing of the monarchy. Three interlocking seas feature on the coins, representing the third King Charles and taking its inspiration from the cipher of Charles II. The edge inscription of the new £2 coin was chosen by the new King Charles and reads, In servitio omnium, which means, in the service of all, taken from his inaugural speech in September last year. The coins follow centuries of tradition with the monarch now facing left, the opposite way to his predecessor. Profiles are alternated between left and right for successive monarchs. As with previous British kings, and unlike the Queen, he wears no crown. New banknotes featuring the image of King Charles are being printed in their millions, but will not enter circulation until the middle of next year, some months after the coins. New notes will replace damaged or worn older ones, but their introduction is slow because machines, such as self-service tills, need to recognise the new image. I'm very much looking forward to seeing those new coins because I do like the natural world. I hope that you, even if you can't see them, will at least be able to feel the design, that it will be raised a little tiny bit so you can feel design, because they do sound lovely. This time of year we remember the horrors of the Blitz, but last week Keith started a what-if story of a little black box on a stricken Luftwaffe aircraft which enclosed the height of technology at the time, with the British and German scientists competing for supremacy over the radio waves. Keith now concludes the Battle of the Beam story. Almost before the war began, the existence of these beams, which paint a cross over the target, had been deduced by a brilliant young physicist called Reginald Jones, who convinced Winston Churchill himself to take action. Jones had been employed by the Air Ministry as Assistant Director of Intelligence, brackets science, a job that sounded impressive until you realised he assisted no one and directed no one. He was a department of one. By the time that Heinkel found itself flying on vapours over Dorset, his, his department had proven its worth, though. His first beam system, known as Nickerbine, meaning crooked leg, had almost wholly succumbed to British jamming. No longer could the enemy use it to reliably navigate by. But the Luftwaffe was not done, and neither was Jones. In a masterpiece of scientific deduction, he had already intuited the existence of the second beam, Exgerat, and most of the details of how it worked. But to jam it, he needed all the details. He needed that box, and now it was coming to him. Accepting he was lost and almost out of fuel, the pilot of the missing Heinkel 
looked for a landing site. From above, Chesil Beach must have looked invitingly like a runway. An 18-mile spit, 200 yards wide, it runs straight and true from Bridport Harbour to Portland. On a moonlit night, the shingle gleams white, but as inviting as the beach looks from above, it is less welcoming when coming up to meet you at 100 miles an hour. Rather than the hard sand the pilot might have hoped for, there was shingle into which the landing gear cut deep grooves. The plane crash-landed. One of the crew died. The others, shaken, did not have the presence of mind to destroy their state-of-the-art navigation equipment. It was a gift for British intelligence. In its electronics lay the crucial information that would mean the bomber could be countered and, with a little luck, the raid disrupted. But there was a problem. In the early hours of the morning, when the army arrived to cordon off the aircraft, they found it lying on the very edge of the beach, the surf lapping at its wheels. They put a rope around it to haul it in. But was this great prize a rare example of a cutting-edge enemy bomber really army business? After all, isn't the sea, even the edge of the sea, the province of the navy? The Royal Navy certainly thought so. Up showed the Navy and said, oh, this is a naval task, revealed Robert Coburn, one of the country's chief radio scientists. It was, he added despairingly, one of those unfortunate wrangles you sometimes get between different branches of the armed forces. As both sides argued, the tide came in, and waves splashed into the cockpit, soaking the delicate electronics in salt water. So by the evening of November the 14th, it had still not been inspected properly by British scientists. Around Coventry, where the air attack was now expected, the British signal jammers were in place. On the roof of the cathedral, the Reverend Richard Howard waited. In Whitehall, Jones called to tell the jammers what settings to use. He had to guess. It was a most diabolical bit of gambling, as you can imagine, he recalled, because if one's wrong, perhaps 500 500 people are dead in the morning. Then he went to bed. That night, during which 500 people would indeed die, Richard Howard looked across the rooftops and saw the bombers unimpeded by the jammers. For hours he and his colleagues battled until they could battle no more, until they had no sand, no strength, and no hope. Before midnight the fight was lost. They left to save themselves and the cathedral burnt to the ground. It would be a couple of days before Jones would find out that his diabolical guesses had, quite incredibly, been correct. One signal had indeed been jammed. However, when the Heinkel's electronics, rusty, salt-ridden, but still intact, were finally investigated, scientists realised there was another beam setting which had not been affected. If they had known that single number, the modulation frequency, 
the setting on, settings on the jammers would have been right. But the pin-sharp radio road to Coventry followed by the German bombers would have become a funny, fuzzy confusion. Would that have made the difference? Perhaps not. The moon was out. The city was clearly visible from above. It's quite possible they would have found their target anyway. The problem is we will never know. It is one of the great tragic what-ifs of British history. But the next morning Coventry was still burning, the smell of charred flesh mingling with the ash. 600 miles away in Berlin, Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propagandist-in-chief, created a new verb, Coventurin, to Coventrate, meaning reduced to rubble. The cathedral roof on which Howard had battled the flames was gone. Standing by the remains of the altar, beneath an open sky, on the exposed sanctuary, he wrote the words, Father, forgive, in chalk. Times were very different during the Second World War, but even more different in the peacetime conditions around the city at the beginning of the 20th century. As recounted in these portraits of life at that time, in hurdy-gurdy days, with Alan. One night, a night we never forgot, we were huddled together waiting for our dad to come home from the pub. Mam used to keep us late for company because she was always scared of him when he was drunk. This particular night was a Friday night, and the Greyhound didn't close until 11pm that night. Grace always had instructions to run down the street and find a policeman if he started knocking mum about. The policeman always walked around in pairs in our district. The old clock on the wall with his pendulum swinging backwards and forwards rhythmically, making a loud tick-tock, tick-tock, suddenly made a whizzing noise and clanged out, Eleven o'clock. We clung together in the darkest corner of the room, away from the firelight, listening to the voices of men turning out of the pub and the footsteps of our dad on the cobblestones of the yard. We heard, Good night, Sam. Good night, Ted. Our dad. Then a lot of laughter, followed by, Yo, wait till you get home, we Ted. They were all arguing and fighting one another. Then his uncertain footsteps, coming up the yard. Hush, said Mam in an awed voice. He's got somebody with him. He's talking to someone. Oh dear, what shall we do? We held our breath, trembling all over as we hastened and listened and waited. So terrified now, as we knew something dreadful was going to happen, Grace started to whimper. Oh, shut up. It's no good blotting, Mam said but she must have been very near to tears herself. He had been inside that pub all evening, three or four hours drinking, so he must be in a drunken state by now. The beer seemed to be double in strength in those days, and the effect it had on all occupants of that court seemed to our childish imaginations to make them into terrifying monsters. Clip-clop, clip-clop came his footsteps, nearer and nearer to our door. He always knew which was the right door, even though he was blind drunk, and all the houses in the court were the same. Come on, you bugger, come on, he was saying. Suddenly the latch lifted, and in he stumbled, and from the dim light on the paraffin hamp and the table, in the middle of the room, we saw to our amusement and our mum's horror 
that he had an animal with him on a lead. Oh, my God, said Mam, as the thing went, Bleh! It ain't a dog, it's a nanny goat. And he was bringing it into our one and only living room. When Mam recovered from her fright and found her voice, she yelled, What you got there? You didn't come in in here. Dad reeled and staggered into the table, the poor goat going with him, holding its head down, Bleh! and charging the table. The table rocked, nearly knocking the paraffin lamp over, and scaring it all to death. Grace and I started screaming. He was so drunk he kept laughing and saying, Oh, he's coming upstairs, we bed with me for a change. <laughs> and before Mam stopped him, he opened the stairs doors and stumbled up the stairs, dragging the goat with him. It was bear, bear, all the way up. Mam started crying herself, but she was now staggering about the room above, having climbed the stairs somehow, and was trying to find the candle to light it cursing and swearing because he couldn't find it. To crown it all, our gran came in from the pub, bringing her half-pint in a jug, laughing and jeering. She was also drunk, as somebody had treated her to an extra pint, as it was Friday night. She had seen him win the goat with a raffle ticket, and she knew what man would say when he got home. How they hated one another! Gran enjoyed crowing over her, not being able to stop him taking it upstairs to bed with him. "'Go and light the bloody candle for him, or you'll see break his bloody neck,' she yelled. "'But that's what you want, any bitch?' Our poor unhappy mum, she was torn between desire to help him in case he did fall down, and hurt himself, and in doing what Gran had told her to do, whom she hated, the feeling being mutual. Finally, for our sakes, she reluctantly dragged herself up the stairs with a lighted candle, crying as she went, "'Oh, oh!' "'Get a bloody move on, can't you?' he shouted when Mam reached the top of the stairs. She could see him slumped over in the corner of the room, pulling the poor animal, who was still away. Out of the room were more stairs leading up to Gran's room. Ah, and suddenly Mam had an idea. Or was it an answer to a prayer, as she had been silently praying to herself all the time? She realised that she had the whip hand, because she had the lighted candle in her hand, and he couldn't see where he was without it. So up the rickety stairs to the attic room went Mam, shouting to him over her shoulder, Come on! And to our amazement he scrambled to his feet, pulling the goat after him towards the second flight of stairs. Bring the animal up here! she shouted again. We were peering up the stairs through the open door, but when he moved we scuttled away in case he came our way, head first, down the first flight of stairs. We heard with relief him stumbling up the second lot of stairs after our mum and the light, but we were frightened in case he turned on her. She knew it was no good arguing with him in that drunken state, but she did say to him, Bringing a horrible animal up here, what about the smell? He said, Oh, you'll have to get used to it, that one. He laughed. The smell, that's a good one, the smell... <laughs> Listening below, we thought he would never stop laughing. Mam set the lighted candle high up on the mantel shelf out of his reach, standing on a chair to do so. Then she pushed past him, leaving him still laughing about the smell, and ran down the two flights of stairs at a gallop. 
pushing us away from the door at the bottom. Come on now, you get ready for bed, it's past midnight. You must sleep with me tonight, and we must lock the bedroom door. She looked across to where Gran was sitting by the fire, stirring her beer with a red-hot poker, chuckling away to herself, thinking how she had scored over ma'am, but not knowing that when she got to bed she would have to share the room with our dad and the goat, and not our ma'am. We would be safe in ma'am's room, and we could do all the chuckling when she went to bed, if we were still awake. But we were very tired and went straight to sleep, huddled together in the big bed. After about an hour we were awakened by a lot of banging and shouting, and we all knew our gran had found out about our dad and the goat. Poor ma'am, she would suffer for this. The name Dave Moorcroft is, I'm sure, best known as a local athletics hero, for which he was awarded an OBE. Did you know he was also High Sheriff of the West Midlands? Here he is talking recently about that special year to the Monday Club. But as David said, uh, last year I was the High Sheriff of the West Midlands, which was really interesting. I'll talk a little bit about that. And now I'm a thing called a Deputy Lieutenant. So um, in the West Midlands, uh, the, the, the King now, used to be the Queen, is represented in each county by a, a Lord Lieutenant. So that person, it's a guy called John Crabtree who's now Sir John Crabtree he's effectively royalty in the West Midlands um, and then he has a series of deputy lieutenants around the county and I've just become one so it's just some, something a bit different um, well done, yes, well done, well done I'll yeah. talk about the High Sheriff bit because that was weird um, and then also I was a runner um, I was born and bred in Coventry um, went to Stouchfield Primary School, not far from here, uh, which was 90 years old at the weekend. I, they, they celebrated their 90th anniversary. I've run around the Memorial Park probably more than anyone in the whole of the city. Because I've been running around there since I was 11, and I'm not 11 any longer. Um, so, yeah, I'm 70, so you can, you know, yeah. Yeah, so that's, what's that, 59 years? Yeah, and. Um, and I went to Woodland School and I, I taught in Coventry and you know in Coventry the, the projects uh, Centre 87, the Excel Centre, the Higgs Centre, the WAVE, well I, I, I kind of began that project working at Sydney Stringer School back in 1981. So that's, that's kind of you know, where I was at. I'll talk a bit about my running in a bit and a bit about growing up in Coventry. But um, just I'll do the high sheriff bit really. There's, and I didn't realise this, but uh, it's the oldest appointment of the Sovereign, is the High Sheriff. And uh, there's a High Sheriff for every county in England. Um, and you're appointed by a nominations committee, but ultimately you, you're um, appointed by a very ancient um, um, celebration or, or process that the Queen did. And it's called being pricked by the Queen. Your name is pricked just before you become the High Sheriff. And uh, it goes back to, to the days of Robin Hood, <laughs> when, when the, the sheriffs used to collect the money on behalf of the monarch. Um, uh, and, but I wasn't allowed to collect money from, from you all, which was disappointing. And so it's a, it's a, kind, of, it, it's a kind of strange role. You've got a really um, ornate costume that I borrowed. But um, as well as supporting the Lord Lieutenant with royal visits and various other things, um, I was also asked to do it because of the Commonwealth Games and because of my background in, in, in athletics. 
because I competed in two Commonwealth Games and, and won two gold medals. So I, during the Commonwealth Games, I had they were on telly. I had the best yeah. best time. Yeah. Warwick University had a. Uh, one of the villages for the athletes and the officials is at Warwick University, so I, I was mayor of the village. Oh, so I, I, I had a ball meeting all the, all the athletes from all around the, the, the Commonwealth. And, and it was lovely, and it made me realise that although, you know, that politics is complicated and, and confused and Brexit and God knows what else, actually the Commonwealth is quite a, a lovely little institution. And, uh, and the, all of the countries, the small Polynesian countries, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, the bigger countries, you know, the Caribbean, they just had the best time and they, they really value the Commonwealth and what the Commonwealth Games stands for. So for me it was, it was, really, it was really uplifting and I managed to watch lots of the sport which was great. But, but also one of the things about being a high sheriff, you do lots of things, you go to loads of events and various other things. But one of the traditions is that the, the High Sheriff is, supports the judiciary, the judges, and the magistrates, and the police, and probation. So during the time that I was High Sheriff, I worked really closely with High Court judges, and spent quite a lot of time with them. And you get to meet them. And you don't do anything, you're just there, it's very symbolic. But one of the, the kind of, um, I suppose, saddest days was when I sat on a murder trial in Birmingham. And it was a group of um, Somalian kids, 16 year olds, had stabbed another Somalian lad. And you, you get the background to what happened. And it was all, it was done, you know, shopping precinct during the day with CCTV. So the lad that did it couldn't possibly get away with it. But you hear the stories of the kids and what, in their lives and how it got to that point. Um, and, and it's really sad. And it makes you realise that, you know, and also in the, in the public gallery were the parents of the children, that had, the youngsters that had, or the youngster that had died, but also the parents of the, of the kids that were standing accused. And, and it's just tragic. But one of the things that I think was, for me, was quite refreshing was how seriously the judges take not just the, 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 the you know, the working towards the verdict and their independence from the jury, but also their understanding of, of the story behind the stories. Mm -hmm. And the, the, you know, the primary thing was about the poor lad who died, but also an understanding of, of why those kids got to that state. And then on another day we went round, we, we met we went to the, head, the police headquarters and with the chief constable, a guy called Sir Dave Thompson, who's now retired. And we went out, um, well actually we went out, in a, we went out in a car and we went to an area where these Somalian kids were from and you kind of realised why that, that's happening you know there was, it was just quite rough and, and a lot of youngsters on the street with not a lot to do Linford Christie, Linford Christie yeah. yeah he was, uh, he, he, he was um, a fabulous runner and his British yeah. record has only just been broken by a lad called Zarnell Hughes um, yeah so we saw lots of things I went to Winston Green Prison Oh, um, yeah, well on one day we went, we went but the, a guy came out of prison who was involved in drugs many years ago and he's, he turned his life around and he got involved in a project in prison to try and help ex-prisoners get jobs. But as he came out of Winston Green, um, he walked back to Manchester with his mates raising money and awareness for prison rehabilitation. So we walked with him along the canal. So we walked from Birmingham to Manchester along the canals. Oh, um, 
But when then we went into Winston Green, and it made, it made me think I'm, I wouldn't be overly keen on going into prison. <laughs> it, I don't know what, how, how, how many of you are co- uh, long-term convicts with, with long police records, but it was sad. And there, were, and there were some really sad stories in there, but there were also you know, a number of people who just had a moment of madness, yeah. and a moment of you know, when, things, when they did something that ultimately mm. they regret. But there was quite a lot of work in the prison to sort of put that to one side and say, let's, let's look at, at all the things you can do right in the future. So yeah, I really enjoyed being a, being a high sheriff, and I've got a fancy costume. <laughs> <laughs> and it was good fun. You just do it for a year. The highlights of Dave Moorcross, the era's high sheriff, bring us to the end of this week's Outlook. So for all the team and myself, Peter Walters, it's goodbye till next time.